Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today. You know, the subject of diversity in the workplace gets a lot of attention, and people have strong feelings about it. Organizations talk about the need to have diverse organizations and then be sincere about that. But actually making that happen can be a difficult thing to do. Designing the right programs is not easy, and getting people on board can be even harder. There are a lot of parts to this. Well, to sort out some of the issues around diversity in a business context, I'm joined on this episode by Eddie In. Now, Eddie is the Smith Professor of Equity and Inclusion in Business at the Smith School of Business at Queen's University. He's done some really interesting research into how leaders can really walk the talk on diversity in the workplace and how they can effectively drive organizational change. It was a really thought-provoking discussion with him. Please stay with us to hear it. organizations walk the talk on diversity. To talk about that, I'm joined by Eddie Ng. He is a Smith Professor of Equity and Inclusion in Business at the Smith School of Business at Queen's University. Eddie, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, Linda, for having me. You know, it's an interesting, broad subject, but I always like to start by asking people about their own lives and careers. How did you end up studying this area? Uh, thanks for that question. I actually worked for the bank for a while, about seven, eight years. Um, I started off in the Pacific Division uh, out west in Vancouver, and then I was promoted to the head office uh, in Toronto at King and Bay. So one of the exciting things about uh, getting to head office is you get this thing called a Centrax. We don't have such a thing anymore. It's a phone book of who's who at the head office, right? So, um, of course, it's exciting to see your own name on the Centrax which means you have arrived. Uh, one of the things I have noticed was um, um, all the title officers, the executives, all the executive assistants tend to be women. And then I can't help noticing that certain groups of um, um, bank employees that are segregated in different areas of the bank. Um, oftentimes we see sort of Asians because they tend to gravitate towards accounting or finance to be in the chief accountant's office or they are in IT, right? So um, I was in domestic planning. So it caused me a bit of a panic and concern, which means that I might be uh, ghettoized within the bank and it might be difficult to move up. So that actually sparked my interest in um, uh, career progressions, especially for equity-seeking groups. Um, And that's how I got into um, uh, the PhD program uh, to study diversity. When you say diversity, maybe we should define that off the top. Are we talking about sex, race, age, something else? Another great question. So you can roughly talk about diversity in two uh, categories, what we call surface level diversity, things we can see it's visible. Like you said earlier, uh, sex, gender, gender identity, uh, age, uh, skin color, which implies race or ethnicity. Uh, there's also a deep level diversity, things that we can't see, uh, your attitudes, values, beliefs, and ideology. So diversity is not just things that we generally think of, but it could also be things that are sort of beneath the surface that make us different. Um, so it's important to recognize the, the invisible part. So there's greater recognition of neurodiversity right now because at first sort of impression, they might seem 
um, to be fully functional, and yet they sort of may have um, uh, different um, sort of neurally diverse right? or different abilities. All right, so as a business goal, because we're talking about business, what's the value of putting diversity in there? If you had to quantify it or define it? Ah, okay. So we have heard all of the business case for diversity. So there is this notion of value in diversity hypothesis. There are like a few components to it, right? So having diversity in itself uh, can endow organizations or work teams certain benefits, but you have to be able to leverage those benefits. So having diversity can sort of improve creativity and innovation. Uh, it can enhance a firm or an organization's marketing capabilities because you have the cultural know-how, you speak the language, and you understand how to market better to a certain group of consumers. Uh, on top of it, um, research has shown that diversity does uh, assess with better problem solving. So there was a study that was done with a group of social scientists in the U.S. that uh, found that um, they literally had students who in homogeneous groups and students in diverse groups. And they did find that um, at the end of the semester, after 16 weeks, uh, the teams that are diverse tend to come up with uh, more questions and were able to generate better uh, solutions to uh, the problem they were trying to solve, right? And then the last part is um, drawn from psychology. A lot of people who are bicultural or multicultural tend to have greater cognitive flexibility. So what it means is that when you are encountering um, sort of you know events that you are not uh, that are not predictable, uh, you are better able to sort of. Uh, go through those events, manage them better. So COVID-19 COVID is, is an example of it, right? So, uh, so literally by being bicultural, bilingual, multicultural, you tend to have greater cognitive flexibility that can help you sort of um, manage through organizational crisis because you bring in diverse viewpoints um, to, to manage crisis better. Um, on top of it, so this is what we call value in diversity hypothesis, right? But in order to leverage on those uh, benefits, you have to somehow manage them because when you have diverse work groups, you end up having more conflict, uh, more miscommunication. Uh, people tend not to work as well as a much more homogeneous work group. So uh, diversity, for the sake of diversity, does have benefits, but you have to be able to draw them out. On top of it, one of the advantages that we have seen, especially with a multicultural country like Canada, is our ability to attract the best and the brightest. So rather than just having a very a single source of uh, pool of talent, now you actually have a much larger pool of talent to draw from. So that is another sort of benefit of, of diversity. Uh, and this is a really strong proposition for all of our employers trying to uh, diversify their workforces. Okay, I mean, these are all great arguments, but there seems to be a bit of a pushback against it. Not everywhere, but I'm thinking of the affirmative action cases in the U.S. universities. Not exactly the same thing as organizations, and we're speaking from Canada, but one way or another, it's sort of a questioning as to whether this is important in itself. Should we work that hard to make, to have things diverse? Now, do you find that, or do you think there's an acceptance that this is important? Uh, there is the misconception around diversity as being 
uh, filling quotas, right? Um, and there's always a tension between affirmative action and meritocracy. So we're pretty fortunate in Canada that the backlash is a lot less. And the three sources or three reasons why there's all this backlash against affirmative action. Number one, it's sort of people feel it's unfair to us, for instance, um, cisgender white male present day to, to rectify past um, mistakes made by, you know, previous generations, right? So why am I paying for it now? Mm-hmm. Uh, the other part, of course, is um, they don't want, they, you know, people get to a certain level of success and it's true meritocracy. Um, but if we start sort of taking away the notion of meritocracy by tying it to privilege, it certainly diminishes a lot of the accomplishments of people who actually got there in the first place through meritocracy, right? But I always want to point out that um, not everybody has an equal chance to be meritorious. So the whole notion of meritocracy in itself is sort of socially constructed uh, by people who were successful in the first place. So they sort of define success and they created a system that sort of tells you how to be successful. So uh, it does sort of um, exclude a lot of people who don't actually have resources to be successful in those terms, right? So that's where the issue is. One better way of going around this uh, notion of affirmative action is, let's say we are admitting 100 students into med school. And you would often find that a lot of folks would have objection if you say, we're going to reserve two spots for underrepresented um, members of the community, usually equity-seeking groups, because then people feel like, what if I'm the 99th or 100th person to be admitted and now I'm being shut out? So that is what we're talking about with the recent Supreme Court case in the U.S. Um, But rather than sort of positioning it that way, what uh, a lot of uh, schools could do is to say, look, we have 100 spots. Everybody would be competing for 100 spots. In addition, we're creating two more spots for underrepresented uh, group members or equity-seeking members. So that way people would feel like it's not taking something away from them. And yet we are able to achieve those goals. I think this is one of the, the things that we have been doing uh, a lot more successful in Canada. So when you look at some of the programs in Canada, we have employment equity or the legislative employment equity program where uh, employers are being asked to sort of have a workforce that is representative of the labor market. But there will be no penalty for not having meet met those goals, uh, employers are being asked to come up with an action plan to close those gaps. Um, and employers are never compelled to hire somebody that are not qualified to do the job, right? So in that way, we try to sort of close the gap by, uh, you know, um, addressing the historical imbalances. Um, but that is true additional efforts, not asking somebody to give way or hiring somebody who is unqualified for the job. Well, let's talk about organizations. There's a lot of initiatives right now, right? A lot of supposed ways that organizations are taking action to have more diverse workforces. I know it's hard to generalize, but how would you characterize what you see in terms of initiatives? And do you think they're actually setting themselves up for success? Um, so what we have seen, so we just had Pride Month recently, this, uh, this past month in June. Um, and of course, we have Black Lives Matter, um, and of course, June was also uh, National Indigenous Heritage or History Month for us as well. A lot of organizations and employers jump into the bandwagon, right? They try to corporatize that because it's good for business. It's great for marketing. 
Um, so what you will see is that they try to do all this in the name of doing good. Um, but what it actually really is, is that they're motivated by the business case. Um, it hasn't really worked as well because it's less authentic and less meaningful. So the most recent research that came out uh, talks of the business case, which uh, employers have jumped onto the bandwagon and which gives um, uh, a compelling reason for employers to sort of put in place diversity initiatives. Um, so we see Black Lives Matter, we see corporate colors uh, in June become like the rainbow flag. Um, but at the end of the day, it's really not so meaningful. So the latest research look at the moral case. And what the moral case says is that um, we don't hire you because you're good for business. We hire you because we respect you, that you can uh, you can contribute and uh, it's the right thing for us to do. So they replicated the study across different groups, uh, women, uh, LGBTQ individuals, I believe gay men, um, uh, African-Americans. Uh, they were asking this respondents whether to sort of, you know, consider a job application or whether they want to stay with an employer on the basis of the business case. We value that you can actually help us, you know, improve profitability versus it's the right thing to do. And what we did find in that study is that, um, uh, or in, in that study is that um, the moral case is more superior in attracting individuals as well as retaining them to work for the organization. Uh, the business case uh, tend to tokenize those identities. Okay, so I mean, what we're getting at is, does the C-suite really care about diversity? I mean. It's not really unfair if they don't, because they have a lot of competing priorities. You have to show good results quarter after quarter, and you might care about a lot of things, but you have what's right in front of you, which is talking to shareholders if you're publicly traded. How do you think, how much do you think is authentic that they really want to change something? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, so, of course, uh, I'm going to sort of uh, enumerate three reasons why the C-suites or chief executives are interested. You're right. At the end of the day, CEOs receive far more stimuli from the environment than they can probably comprehend and act on. So very simply from a managerial cognition perspective, they look at things as either a strategic opportunity or a strategic threat. They tend to sort of pay attention to those, right? Strategic opportunity, they look at um, Pride Month, great opportunity for us to sell to a 19 billion dollar market so they would do something with it on the other hand they see something like um you know police brutality against african-american youth they saw george floyd they go well this is potentially a threat um, because it could impact the organization especially our african-american employees so they would act on those things right um so ceos are motivated by the bottom line because they have to respond or answer to shareholders so the business case as I've mentioned earlier, is the most compelling reason for them to sort of pursue diversity. Uh, aside from that, you'll find that some CEOs are persuaded by moral values, either because of ideology or uh, even things like religion. We have to treat others right. Um, so they would abide by the moral case, whether a, 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 a diversity initiative is going to be uh, profit motivated or not. Uh, but we see very few cases like that, right? Um, and then a third one that I like to say is if the business case is not there in the instance where it's not a, a private uh, for-profit organization um, or if the moral case is not there, some CEOs are indeed motivated for personal reasons. 
what I call legacy reasons, right? So I'll give you an example. There were studies being done in finance that found that CEOs who have daughters tend to behave or make decisions in much more socially responsible manners. So having kids who are sort of, you know, different or who might be disadvantaged might actually motivate CEOs to actually take decisions uh, to improve uh, the diversity uh, records. On the other hand, some of them might be motivated for legacy reasons, right? So we now know that it's one of the grand challenge. Um, so what they might want to do is, well, you know what? Early in my tenure, I'm focused on, um, you know, um, being successful from a financial perspective, but towards the end of your tenure CEO, you tend to want to do things that you're remembered for and doing things right. So there are some CEOs who are motivated by, you know, uh, to create a legacy uh, and they end up sort of pursuing diversity as one of their goals. So there are, uh, there, they, they do care about diversity, but to varying degrees. Uh, it all depends on the motives. Okay, so suppose you do care or, you know, you're pushed into doing this. You want to have managers that choose a diverse workforce. How do you incentivize that? How do you make it happen? It's hard. Um, so CEOs say they are committed to diversity all the time. We hear it, right? Uh, so managers actually, in a similar way, have far more that they can, far more that they can possibly comprehend. So they look at the agenda and go, which one of these objectives that the CEOs talk about um, would I take them seriously? So they hear a lot of things. Oftentimes the speeches are written by the public affairs office, speech writers. So they might not really buy into it or do anything. So they will see how the CEOs behave. And if the behavior is consistent with what they say, then managers are much more likely to act in that way. Now, one of the things to note is that we have known from data right now is it doesn't really matter what organizations do. The only way to get results is to uh, um, hold managers accountable. And the most effective way is to set goals um, and tie managers' compensation to those goals. So if you are able to diversify your workforce in a span of three years, the unit that you're managing and advance them, then um, that would, uh, that those accountability uh, tied to compensation would definitely motivate managers to achieve those goals. If you want to do it with money and bonuses, is that effective? And if it is, like who should you be... Uh, centering that around? Should it be the executives? Should it be the line managers? Uh, a bit of both. So we, we now recognize that um, different uh, managers have a lot of discretion in how they implement corporate policies. Just because the CEO say them doesn't mean that they want to implement them. So at the frontline manager level, who are responsible for hiring, you would definitely want to tie compensation to numerical goals, right? Um, because they're the ones that do hiring. At the more senior level, middle or senior level management, you tend to want to sort of tie them to different goals, for instance, the climate. Um, I'll talk about that in a second, but also in advancing. So it's one thing to bring people into the organization to look diverse. It's quite another thing to actually um, develop and promote them and advance them through the organization itself. Um, now, going back to climate, uh, most executive senior level managers tend to have uh, craft policies and create the tone within the unit, within the department, within the team. So holding them accountable for, you know, the climate of inclusion is really important. One of the things you could do is to survey employees, ask them a few questions about, uh, you know, 
um, access to information, access to influence, perceived insider status? Are you committed to the organization? So those things are really critical. So having the right level of accountability um, is really important to ensure that um, the different managers uh, have that discretion to make those changes that we're, we're hoping for. Let's talk about something slightly different. Now we have remote work and often the person who decides not to come to the office is the person who's most different. I've been told even in an office where it's mostly young and there's one older guy, he's the one who stays home. And you can say the same for any other group. What's that going to do to diversity goals? So when you talk about remote work, um, it's quite complex at the moment because who wants to go back to work in person and who prefers to stay home uh, are quite different. Generally, you might find that women would prefer staying home because it gives them greater flexibility. We all know that women do two shifts, right? They have a shift at the office, they come home. Uh, likewise, you might find that some workers with disabilities might prefer to work from home because it makes it so much more flexible for them to work. Now, with that said, um, you might have you know, come across, well, Bob is in the office. So we see Bob more often. For sure. Um, and Bob when we see him more often, we will give him more opportunities um, and he does well. And of course we will reward him. So certainly when you have remote work, it creates all this, who gets to work from home, who gets to work at the office, as well as equity issues around important assignments, visibility and rewards. Um, the other thing of course is, even when you have employees who are able to work from home, how do organizations support them, right? So again, going back to gender, women having two shifts, they traditionally have two shifts back to back. Now they have two shifts that are concurrent. Um, so that makes it even more challenging. How do employers support them to ensure that, you know, um, this remote work would work out equally uh, for everybody? Yeah, and that was my question. I mean, do you think it's going to be a setback? Oh, absolutely. For sure. So you might find that those who actually are able to show up at the office uh, would, you know, receive more recognition and be promoted. And of course, over time, you might find that only certain groups of people uh, end up rising to the top. Yeah, uh, and that's you need really good management to get around that. I don't think we always see that. Um, there's a lot more I could ask, but is there one example of a company, you don't have to even name the name, that you think is doing something positive and seeing results? Oh, um, I want to say it starts with the very top. There are two organizations that I can think of. Um, I now share them because they're public. One is Disney. So Disney took the um, uh, a stance uh, to go against the state to support their the LGBTQ employees, and that's very public. Uh, the other one is Alan Alan Joyce. He uh, he was the CEO of Qantas, uh, one of the very strong proponents for same sex marriage in Australia, which only became legal quite recently. Um, he's willing to sort of uh, stick his reputation out and put the company out there uh, to support uh, his LGBTQ uh, employees. I think those are really important statements uh, that. Uh, an organization could do. Um, now, oftentimes we, in Canada, we have post media putting out the best companies for diversity for women, right? Um, I'm very skeptical with, with that list in part because um, they look at val diversity statements, right? Diversity statements are written by professionals. It doesn't actually reflect what actually goes on in the organization. They also look at policies that are in uh, being put on the books, but those policies are not necessarily being made available or implemented, as you have said earlier, equitably across the diverse, you know, uh, employees that they have, right? So I would rather um, sort of, you know, 
uh, reassess the list of companies that are published annually uh, and look at what companies actually do in order to genuinely and authentically support their employees. Lots of work to do. Eddie, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you, Linda. Eddie In is Smith Professor of Equity and Inclusion in Business at the Smith School of Business at Queen's University. Well, that's it for this episode. If you'd like to know more about Eddie and his work, please take a look at our show notes. You'll find some links there. If you'd like to connect with me, I'm on Twitter at, at @relentlesseco. Now, if you did enjoy this conversation about the future of work, please take a moment and leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. That'll really help people to find us and help us to keep these conversations going. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks as always to Stokely Audio for audio production. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at the workandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work in the Future podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production. Mm-hmm.